So, today we will be introducing the Minor Prophets, and then throughout the next, um, I think, 13 weeks, we will be doing a Minor Prophet a class. So, it works out that there's 12, so that gives us one introduction, one conclusion for the 14-week semester, and then one Minor Prophet a week. Um, so, how many Bible Bowl champs do we have in here? <laughs> You, 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 you think you can do the whole Old Testament in order? Oh, I know Miss Gail can. <laughs> she was the Bible. She'll she sing them for you. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. I used to know him. Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and Job, Song of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Revelations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and the of God. That's where it gets tricky. Boom, she's got it. Um, so, you know, the title of this class, again, is more than just a funny name. Because I think a lot of times when we, you know, look at the Minor Prophets, they're just these silly names that we've memorized as little kids, and then don't really know much about them. They're generally pretty short books. Um, you don't hear preachers going in depth very often, doing a study like um, Josh is doing of Mark. So sometimes we just kind of forget them and know that Habakkuk is a name, but doesn't really know what's going on there and why it matters to us. And so that's kind of the purpose of this class, is to do a brief overview of these books and then figure out how we see the mission of God acting through these books. Um, so, I meant to get a pen, but that's fine. So, you know, some of these we probably know quite a bit about. I'm sure all of y'all know about Jonah, know the story, pretty familiar with that. Um, who can tell me something about Obadiah? Just any random fact you might have about Obadiah. Edom has, Edom has uh, been bad. Yeah, Edom's bad. That's how I remember. Both bad, Edom. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Edom, Edom has been bad because they have rejoiced with Israel fell yeah. to the Exactly. Um, what about, uh, we'll go Zephaniah. Anyone know any facts about Zephaniah? content, anything? Um, Haggai? So, you know, that's that's what I expect. You know, probably we know Hosea, uh, with Hosea and Gomer, and um, Jonah, and some of these, you know, have some verses we might be familiar with, because they're kind of popular verses. But a lot of these, we just, you know, personally, myself, um, I don't really know. So that's part of the reason I want to do this class, because I wanted to dive into these and do look at the scholarship and see what's going on. Um, so this is kind of the organization that we look at um, in the prophets. 
So what's considered the former prophets um, are, you know, the books of Joshua and Kings, and these are Samuel going through Elisha through the 8th and 9th century BCE. And then we have the later prophets, not to be confused with Latter-day Saints, <laughs> but Latter Prophets. And so uh, Jewish folks and Christians actually organize these books differently. Um, so with Jews, they have what's called the Four Scrolls, which is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then what's called the Twelve. And so all of the minor prophets we're looking at are actually considered one book together um, in Jewish tradition. But Christians, we actually add Daniel onto that list, which in Jewish tradition is part of the writings. Daniel goes with Esther and Ruth and Job and kind of those books. Um, but we have Christians divide them into the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then add Daniel, while the minor prophets are Amos through Malachi. So... What, you know, when we use this word prophet, what do we mean? So, first off, it's a genre of biblical literature. Um, so there's, uh, the, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel are two very great, great examples of biblical prophecy. There's these crazy visions, very vivid imagery, um, often very confusing and leave you scratching your head saying, what on earth is going on here? Um, because the symbols and the references are something that isn't really applicable to, or not applicable, isn't really familiar to 21st century American Christians living in Tennessee. Um, for Jewish or Christians, you know, living in the first century, they would, they would be pretty familiar with these kind of things. Um, so prophetic fact passages, these could be inspirations, interpretations, admonitions, or predictions, and they appear wildly throughout the biblical narrative. So some books as a whole are just kind of the prophetic genre, while other books you see, you know, these prophetic passages that are um, plugged in at various different times. And so some future-looking prophecies are conditional, right, where they say, you know, the Lord says, if you do X, Y, Z, then I will do X, Y, Z, right? And so if these conditions are assumed and met, um, then there could be a reward, or the Lord could be having a punishment. Um, so often the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, especially the minor and major prophets, are often warning the Israelites to repent, 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 um, y'all are worshiping these false gods, things are going bad. If you keep going down this road, things are going to end up bad for you. Um, so some of the kind of, the setting, so the word, the English word prophet, comes from the Greek prophetes, which just means proclaimer. So someone who proclaims. Um, and so we have some, in the Near East, we have some contemporaries, some peers, and so Sumeria from the 18th century, which is, um, you know, about a thousand years before the minor prophets, the first of the minor prophets, which traditionally is identified as Amos, was written. Um, the Mari Archive has these big library we found of cuneiform tablets. And so a lot of these have this prophecy genre. 
right? And in this context, it's always in the best interest of the king. And so it's assuring the Sumerian king that you will defeat your enemies and they will quake before you and you will, you know, or say, hey, be careful, this thing, you know, don't, don't go to war with these neighbors, they're powerful, you know, be nice to them. But it's always in the best interest of the king. Um, and which is actually contemporary with most of our biblical prophets in Assyria. Um, the royal archives of the Assyrians had a massive library, um, incredibly violent, repressive empire, but they like to read. So, um, But it's also focused on the affairs of kings, um, assuring this divine support constantly in these texts. You see the phrase, fear not, which um, is also pretty common in the Bible, right? Um, and so, but... Again, these negative prophecies were seen as inauthentic. So if it said, this king is bad, you're doing something bad, you're unjust, you're oppressing your people, um, the king would say, oh, that's not a real prophecy. That's inauthentic and throw it out. Um, and so only the ones that supported the king, um, support, or I guess the emperor, if we're talking about Assyria, were actually seen as like real prophecies actually from the gods. And so you can see how that's kind of different from Israel and Judah and the prophets in the northern and southern kingdoms where, you know, um, there's some pretty, prophets tend to be pretty critical of kings. We can think of Nathan coming before David and confronting him about his sin with Bathsheba, right? Um, We can think of Elijah and King Ahab and Queen Jezebel on how constantly he was calling them out. Uh, which is very different from some of the other neighboring tradition, prophetic traditions around this time. So prophets, you know, in Israel are seen as messengers of God. Usually they will kind of open up their, their book as thus says Yahweh or the utterances of Yahweh and say that they are kind of channeling the voice of God through them. Generally, these prophets are from outside of the traditional religious institutions. So, you know, these aren't people in the priests, these aren't priests working in the temple who are very much intertwined with the power structures and the, the systems. But Amos, for example, was a shepherd. Way out here on the margins, just tending his sheep, when the Lord came to him and says, Hey, you know, you need to become my prophet and tell the people this. Um... But they operate from the same shared religious tradition. So it's not like they're outside of the Jewish religion um, that's forming at this time. But they still operate using the same tradition, the same language, the same um, shared religious beliefs. At least, you know, big picture, but maybe some of the other stuff. um, How you treat the poor, how you treat the oppressed, how you treat the stranger... Um, they, they may have different views than kind of the established priestly class in um, Jerusalem and Samaria. They're often um, advisors or, like I said in the case of Nathan, reproachers of kings um, who can, you know, and not just, um, not just um, Israeli, not Israeli, Israelite kings, Um, So we can think of Daniel, who was an advisor to the Babylonian kings and the Persian kings. Um, And also interpreter of events. So, and this, we're really going to get into the the next couple slides, into the historic context. 
but they're passionately focused on current events. And so it makes it relatively easy to date, well, easy, easier than some texts to date because of how, like, for example, um, there's this, what's known as the Syro-Ephraimite War, and Isaiah talks a lot about it. And so it's very easy to date and say, okay, well, Isaiah had to have been written right around this war that we have historical reference to between um, Syria and Assyria and the Ephraimites and Israel and kind of this little geopolitical um, mess that happened in the 8th century. And so, you know, a lot of these are very specific situations and highly concrete terms, and so it makes the historic context very important. Um, so something one of my professors at Vanderbilt, um, I'm in Vanderbilt Divinity School right now, I don't think I said that when I was introducing myself. Um, but he has this line that prophets are not foretellers, but forthtellers. So I'm curious what that line means to you when you see it. Kind of, what are your thoughts? So are you suggesting that they never foretold? No, I'm not. I'm but just... Boy, that's an yeah, I'm, I'm suggesting that there are... Um, like, what, what's the difference between foretelling and foretelling? Foretelling is telling ahead of time, and foretelling is telling the truth. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty accurately. And so his his argument is that when you look in Deuteronomy, there are lots of there are several passages that condemn um, what's the word like oracles, seers, kind of this divination and foretelling, and so. Maybe, you know, there could be some foretelling of predicting into the future, but really the prophetic voice is about here and now. And Israel, right now, what do you need to know right now versus sometime far off in the future? So now we're really going to dive into some of the history, Um, starting out in kind of the 11th through 10th century. We have the main prophets. Samuel, Nathan, Ahijah, the Shilonite, Shemaiah. And then the kings we're all familiar with, Saul, David, Solomon. And the main foreign power is the Philistines. And so this is kind of a rough creation of a map of the ancient Near East around this time. You have Israel under Saul, David, and um, Solomon. is kind of at its largest extent as an empire. The Philistines are down here. And the Assyrians and Babylonians are, you know, large, but not quite empires like we'll see soon. Um, and so it's a relatively, there's, there's some parity, some geopolitical parity going on where you don't just have one dominant force overpowering all the other nations like will happen in a couple hundred years. Um, and so in the next century, in the ninth century, this is the kind of the era of the divided kingdoms, right? So after Solomon, kingdom of Israel in the north with its capital in Samaria, the kingdom of Judah in the south with its capital in Jerusalem. Some of our prophets during this time are Elijah, Elisha, uh, Micaiah, and then um, some of the kings who we might have read about 
Nadab, Omri, Ahab, and Jehu in the north, and Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Amaziah in the south. And by this time, the Philistines were pretty much subjugated by um, the two kingdoms. And the main kind of foreign power who Israel was concerned about were the Arameans up here in Damascus. And if we see on this map, uh, the Assyrian Empire is slowly creeping in to this area. Um, That again is, you know, there's some parity between the different nations here where it's not just one dominant. Um, And so in the 8th century... 722 is a very important date because that's when the Sumerians conquer, I mean, the Assyrians conquer Samaria. And the northern kingdom um, is conquered and basically that's it. Uh, It kind of, they deport a lot of the folks, they bring in other folks, and really that area really loses its... um, its heritage and its cultural connections. And so kind of the rest of um, Jewish history is kind of followed through um, Judea and Jerusalem. And so during this period, before the fall of the north, um, as the Assyrian Empire is slowly growing in power, our main prophets, which is finally the ones we're actually going to be studying, Hosea, Amos, Micah, Isaiah, and Jonah is set during this time. A lot of people think Jonah was written much later, but the setting for Jonah, because uh, Jonah is interesting in that it's a narrative story, where most of the other prophets, um, minor prophets, are more just prophecies, right? It's that prophetic genre, while Jonah is actually written as a narrative, which is really interesting. Uh, some of the kings in the north, right, are Jeroboam, Hosea, and they get conquered, and that's it. While the south, you have Isaiah, Ahaz, Hezekiah, who Hezekiah actually kind of defends Jerusalem from the Assyrians. And so the major threat here is the Assyrians. And as, you know, I'm sure y'all who know the, the Jonah story, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrians and kind of this this belly of the beast that we have. So I like this map because you see the massive Assyrian Empire in this little bitty circle right here. And that's Judah who remained independent and um, a degree of independence. All right, There were some vassal treaties and um, you know they weren't necessarily rebelling against Assyrian hegemony. But the Assyrians actually conquer Egypt, um, who was the other main geopolitical power on the other side of this region of the world. And so kind of during the um, 8th to 7th century, we have prophets like Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. Kings in Judah are Manasseh, Amon, Josiah, you know, with his famous kind of reforms of the Jewish religion when he finds some of the old text of the laws. And of course, the main power during this time is the Assyrians. What happens in 612 is these guys down here, um, who are known as the Babylonians, rebel, overthrow Assyrian. And there also was a big civil war between 
um, two brothers who both thought, I should be the Assyrian emperor. No, I should be it. Um, which is a disaster if you're trying to be a world-spanning empire. Um, civil wars don't, don't work out too well for you. And so in 612, you have the Babylonians who take over, um, and they're the new um, hegemon in the area, the new global power. And these prophets, Jeremiah, who also was kind of the time before, Ezekiel, and Obadiah. And the kings we have here are Josiah, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. And so the Egyptians were kind of another rival foreign power, um, Pharaoh Necho, N-E-C-O. Um, and the Babylonian king fought some wars with Judah kind of being this in-between player. Um, but in 587, really like 597 to like 580, it was a longish period, you have the siege of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, and the exile begins, um, which is you know, kind of one of the defining moments of Jewish history, is the exile to Babylon um, that we read about in the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, all those guys who get... Um, taken from Jerusalem and scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire. And so this uh, Babylonian exile lasts until 539. So about 50 years, um, you can think two, two and a half generations um, of these people trying to retain their culture, trying to retain their history, their religion in a foreign land um, while they you know, can't go back to their homeland. And then in 539, Cyrus the Great, the Persian emperor, then takes over um, Babylon. And here you can kind of see the Persian Empire at its greatest extent, which is larger than the Assyrian or the Babylonians, um, who were mainly just around this, but Persia was just this massive um, world-spanning empire at the time. And so in 539, um, the exile ends. And the Persians were pretty, um, pretty tolerant as far as um, you know, evil empires of the ancient Near East go. And um, they were very tolerant of people to follow their own religions, follow their own traditions, um, as long as you just kind of you know, paid your taxes. They were very decentralized in the way they governed through these governors called satraps. And it wasn't, the regions had relative autonomy. So Cyrus famously lets the Jews return to um, Judea. And that's when we have these political leaders like Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Um, they're not kings anymore, but um, briefly, and our prophets Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, there's not really a good... Um, consensus on the dating of Joel. Some people put it all the way in the 8th century. Some people put it in the 6th or the 5th century. There's And there's just not enough really biblical evidence to date it to certain places. Um, so that's why I have a question mark in there. And most people think Jonah was written post-exile but was written about a prophet who lived um, back when the Assyrians were still around in the 
8th century. And of course Malachi too. So, you know, and then I, I like maps. I'm a history geek, so it's just funny to see kind of what happens from here. Uh, we kind of think of that vision of Daniel, right, of the statue made of different things that eventually gets conquered. Is There's a lot more than just four or five materials it's made out of because you've got Alexander's empire, then the Seleucids take over, then briefly the Hasmoneans and the Jewish have their own independent kingdom for a couple years, and then the Romans and the Byzantines, then the, Abbas, or the Umayyad Caliphate, Abbasid Caliphate, the Fatmids, the Seljuk Turks, the Crusader states briefly take over, um, the Mamluks, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, and then finally we have today where it's this divided land between Israel and Palestine. Um, so it's just, uh, it is a piece of land that has been exchanged by foreign powers for a very, very, very long time. And so that really kind of sets the geopolitical context of these um, of these prophets. These minor prophets are operating in a time where these massive empires are expanding and encroaching on Jewish liberty. Um, and so it just kind of shows a lot of what's going on. Let's see, how's, how's my time going? Oh, perfect. Um, so the economic context that's going here. You have in the 8th, 7th, 6th centuries, these new economic forms in the ancient Near East are taking form. Um, you really have the proliferation of money in the idea of instead of bartering, instead of um, exchanging forms of credit back and forth, we now have these actual coins. Um, I believe this is a Persian coin with one of the Persian kings, his face on it. Um, you also have kind of the creation of debt and credit in this idea that, okay, well, yeah, you can, I'll give you money, but you're going to owe me more, right? Um, and who's, who's to decide how much more is too much more, how much more is the fair amount, right? When you have the, um, and then also kind of the creation of property, where before this time, we can think about in the Deuteron in Deuteronomy, um, we have this like year of Jubilee and this seven kind of year cycle where you didn't ha really have this accumulation of land, which is basically the only form of wealth back then because money was, um, you know, in its early stages and was very spare. No one had like big vaults full of gold coins or anything like that. Um, and so, as, you know, before that, you could accumulate land for a couple decades, but eventually it would go back to its original owners. It would go back to the original tribe, um, the original families. And so every so often there was a reset where things went back to normal. Everyone was relatively equal again. Um, but it, in this time that older system in Deuteronomy starts to finally disappear and so you have um, a, the rise of a Jewish aristocracy who start buying up, um, controlling the land and so you kind of have the stratification of a class system that starts to really emerge during this time um, where you have these, um, I mean almost 
not quite indentured servants, but definitely we can think of like sharecropping in the U.S. history, where you have people who are working on land they don't own for starvation wages, right, you know, at the sustainable living. Because during this period, 90 to 95 percent of people worked in agriculture. Vast, vast majority of them lived right at the level of um, substance, substance, subsistence. There we go. Um, and so it was, you know, you had this very small top, who you had, some, you know, a class of some merchants and tradesmen who might have a couple skills, and then you had the very top who were um, the priestly class, the um, kind of nobility as we think of it. And so this is a time, and you see this in a lot of the prophets, um, especially Amos and other folks, um, where you just see evidence of this increased, hey buddy, you don't want to go to class? Okay. Well, he can come to daddy's class. Um, and so this is a huge shift. And it doesn't seem like a huge shift, but it really transformed Israeli or Israelite society and the whole the whole world basically. We can trace our economy today, our modern capitalist economy, back to its roots um, in the ancient Near East as that spread through Europe and spread through Asia and later became what we have today. There's also were a bunch of religious changes going on in this time. A lot of scholars refer to this period, this half millennium, about 500 years, as the axial age. Um, you had these made kind of the major world religions we think of today, just the big ones that have stuck around. Um, a lot of them were formed during this period. You have Judaism, um, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, which was a huge religion of the Persian Empire um, after the, um, the Arab conquest of Persia. It was replaced with Islam, but it, you know, it was a very large religion, and eventually Christianity, which comes from Judaism. And then about 500 years after this, you have Islam as kind of the last major world religion that emerges. And so in Judaism, you kind of have this, during this time, you have this battle for monotheism, right, where we read about these kings who want to worship the other gods, they put, you know, idols in high places, and constantly prophets like Elijah and Elisha are saying, no, there's only one God but Yahweh. Y'all need to quit that. Y'all need to get rid of, you know, your, um, your Asherah poles and um, putting, offering your children to Molech and worshiping Baal. And so you have this tension that's going on at this time. And you also have kind of the consolidation of the priestly class. Um, where these religious institutions, these systems are slowly kind of falling into place that we eventually see um, when we look in the Gospels, right? Where the temple complex with the Sanhedrin, it's this very complex, well-developed network and system. And so a lot of that is kind of slowly being formed during this time. Um, and then you have the prophetic critique of those in power, right? These folks like Amos, who are shepherds, you know, he didn't have a theology degree. He didn't know, he didn't grow up in the in the um, temple complex like someone like Samuel did, right? Um, saying, 
hey, um, you know, I'm seeing things from a different angle, and y'all have got a lot of stuff wrong. There's a lot of stuff you're missing with your religion. Um, and so those are kind of some of the religious shifts we see going on at this time. So the question is, why is this important, right? Um, you know, the easy answer is it's, it's in the Bible, so of course it's important. Um, and that's, that's very much true. But one of the reasons I think that the prophets are so important is because the New Testament writers thought they were important. They were constant, you know, the New Testament writers were constantly going back to the old text, the Old Testament, which for them would have been the Greek Septuagint, which was a um, Greek um, translation of the Old Testament. But so we look at Peter quotes both Hosea and Malachi um, in First and Second Peter. Paul in his various epistles references Hosea, Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Malachi. In Matthew's gospel, we have. I mean, Matthew is really diving in to the history and the tradition of the prophets, um, and referencing Hosea, Jonah, Micah, Zechariah, Malachi, many of them multiple times. Luke, um, who shares some of the same stories as Matthew, just like Mark, right? Um, references Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, Malachi. John, in both the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, and Revelation, you have references or direct quotations of Hosea, Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah, the Hebrew writer, whoever that might be, um, reference Habakkuk and Haggai twice, which is interesting because they all three start with H, <laughs> which is just funny for some reason. Um, Jude quotes Zechariah, and then Mark quotes Zechariah and Malachi. And so obviously if the people who are writing about Jesus, who are writing about Christianity, kind of, you know, you can think of Paul as one of our first theologians who's really kind of figuring out what's going on here. If they thought these are important, we definitely need to think they're important and not just look over them as, oh, that's a funny-sounding name that I memorized once when I was in fourth grade, right? And so another thing is these reveal the mission of God to us. And this is something um, that um, my work with Becky Frazier that we really want to try to help y'all is figure out what is the mission of God and how can you, as someone who lives in Tennessee in 2021, take part in that broader mission of God, right? How, what? Because each of us have a role to play, whether we know it or not. And so this shows us what God cares about, right? What angers God? What are the things back in the 8th century that angered God, unless God changed God's mind at some point, those things probably still anger God. Um, What breaks God's heart? What are the things that, when we read through the prophets, that really just... um, that really just hurt God? And so the question is, what does God expect from us as, you know, followers of the risen Christ, as Christians, as... Um, people who are kind of the inheritors of this tradition going all the way back to Abraham, right? What, what are we to do? And so you can see this mission, you know, starting with creation, the law, the prophets, 
been revealed in Christ, and then here we are now as the church, right? I think a lot of times we have this this bad kind of um, dualistic thinking that we have like the Old Testament over here and then the New Testament over here. And Jesus came and was like, oh yeah, no, all that's wrong. You do this stuff. And um, I mean, it's, it's almost anti-Semitic in the way that we say, oh, well, that's something for them, but all of this stuff applies to us. But you see, Jesus says, no, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not reject it. And so you see the same, you know, you also sometimes hear people say like the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. Well, it's the same God. God didn't, you know, um, there was a Christian heretic in the 4th century named Marcion. Came up with this kind of thing of Marcionism that really rejected the God of the Old Testament as this God of hate and anger and wrath. And then the God revealed to us. And Jesus was totally different. Um, And that was rightfully condemned as heresy. Because you see the same love and the grace and the justice that we see in Christ through creation, the law, and the prophets. Um, When we really dive into it, it's, it's the same mission. And it's, you know, God hasn't changed. This mission hasn't changed. So as we... Um, as Christians today are called to take part in it in some way. So, um, and like I said, it's the inspiration for many other prophets, many other foretellers, proclaimers, right, throughout church history who have gone to these roots, gone to the minor prophets, and found so much. So we're going to listen to um, one of the most famous speeches in American history, as I'm sure many of y'all are familiar with. And I'll, we're going to listen for a couple minutes, and I just want to see if you can hear anything that sounds, maybe that's a biblical quotation, maybe that came from something. Um. We shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, When will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream.
that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering, continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. One day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. And every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is
That was the point I was, <laughs> the part I was waiting for. Um, so what, what did y'all hear in that speech? Was there anything that might have um, triggered a, I think this might be a biblical citation, or he might be referencing something. Okay. Thinking about a lot of the minor prophets talk about the day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Right? For so sure. One day, kind of evoking that idea of one day things will be mm-hmm. better, one day things will be redemptive. Yeah. So part of justice rolling the Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we look right here. Oh, so English doesn't have a second person pronoun. A second person plural pronoun, right? You can mean you or you can mean you. So there's this, uh, but Hebrew and Greek do. And so a lot of times you list whether in the Bible it's talking about you or talking about you. And so there's this, um, what's called the y'all version, where they, if it's a second person plural pronoun, they translate it into English. Um, But yeah, we see here in Amos 5 is what King is quoting from when he says, Will not the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness to it? And here we see this kind of, like I mentioned before, this conflict with institutionalized religion where Amos says, I hate, I reject y'all's festival, nor do I delight in y'all's solemn assembly. Even though y'all offer up to me burnt offerings, y'all's grain offering, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offering of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so King is kind of calling back to this that, you know, as Christians, yes, worship is important. And yes, you know, meeting here on Sunday to learn and worship God and serve God are important. Um, but it's all, it's a clanging gong, like Paul says, if it doesn't have love, right? And then there at the end, he referenced one more thing. Um, let's see, down here, whoops, in verse, um, verse 4, right? Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that's from Isaiah 40. Does anyone know where else this is found in the Bible? So this is what John and Luke, in Luke 3, when John the Baptist first steps on the scene and starts his ministry out in the wilderness, this is what, um, this is what Luke um, shows us that John was preaching and was fulfilled through John, that a voice is calling, uh, clear the way, make right the way of the Lord, right. Um, And so at the end of the clip we saw, you saw King also kind of use this idea of equality, right, where the things on the very high are made even, and the things that are very low down at the bottom are brought up. And so together we have this kind of analogy, this reference to, um, justice and equality. Um, so, let me... I think that is it. I think I just had one more slide that was just, you know, 
whoops, not share, present, is, you know, what is your role in this mission, and how can the prophets, reading the minor prophets, help you discover that? Um, and so that's just kind of the question I want to leave y'all with. And um, for your homework, start reading Joel. Next week we're going to be starting out with Joel. It's only three chapters, so, you know, if you get time, read it two or three times and just um, try to spend some time with the locusts. <laughs> Joel talks a lot about locusts. So uh, thank you all for coming, and I will see you all later.